Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Dr. Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, was published in 2016. Surveying the scenes of the January 6th riot and assault on the U.S. Capitol by a mostly white pro-Trump mob, the need to speak those truths seems even more urgent and necessary. In that award-winning bestseller, Dr. Anderson reframed the conversation about race, methodically chronicling the powerful forces that have historically impeded Black progress in America. After so many characterizations of the response to police conduct in Ferguson, Missouri, as Black rage, she wrote in the Washington Post column that was the genesis of the book that it was instead white rage at work. With so much attention on the flames, everyone had ignored the kindling. Is that what the world saw in the violent efforts to overturn the results of a free and fair election in the symbolic center of our democracy? Dr. Anderson, the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University, centers her research and teaching on the ways that domestic and international policies intersect through the issues of race, justice, and equality in the United States. This week, we need her perspective and her voice. Welcome to Equal Time, Professor Anderson. I want to first start off with the phrase that we've heard politicians and others as they're reflecting on the events of the last week. They all say, this is not who we are. When you hear that, what do you want to say in response? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, you can only say that if you don't know our history. You can only say that if you don't know how powerful white supremacy has been in terms of thwarting democracy, undermining it, short-circuiting it, violently trying to overthrow it, violently succeeding in some cases. Um, so this is not who we are. What they should be saying is this is not who we want to be. If we understand America as an aspirational nation, always aspiring to be that city on the hill, aspiring to be where uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, then what we're talking about is the, the clash between who we are and who we want to be and the unwillingness to do the heavy work that it takes in order to be who we want to be. What is that heavy work? Oh, that heavy work is calling out white supremacy and denying it access to power. That heavy work is being truthful about our history. So remember several months ago, uh, Trump held this, this forum where in, in response to the 1619 project that noted the, the centrality of slavery to the, to the life of America. And he wanted a patriotic history one where, you know, we just came out miraculously. Um, we, we just got here. And, and, and what it does is it erases, it erases the, the systematic removal of indigenous people from their land. It erases the brutality of slavery and who built this land. It erases the work of immigrants. Uh, for instance, Chinese immigrants who are central to the development of the railroad system, saying this is not who we are and we want a patriotic history. 
means that you erase the brutality in that history. And when you erase that brutality, then you don't know how you really got here. So what we saw on January 6th, you wrote a book, White Rage, coined that phrase. Was that white rage on display? Absolutely. And, and, but let me be real clear. When I talked about white rage in that book, I didn't mean the violence because too often in this nation, we focus in on the violence as that is the rage. For white rage, white rage is the policy violence, the bureaucratic violence. And what that bureaucratic violence is designed to do is to undercut the advancements of African-Americans towards their citizenship rights, like their voting rights. And what that bureaucratic violence also does is it sanctions, it approves the physical violence that then rains down on people who are opposed to a white supremacist regime. So what we saw when you saw the president of the United States saying, march down there to the Capitol and and you know, you've got to show strength. You got to be tough. Uh, when you've got the president's uh, attorney talking about, you know, combat, that's the bureaucratic violence that then nurtured and allowed this thing to explode. The bureaucratic violence where you had key state legislatures, like in Georgia allowing Rudy Giuliani to do this dog and pony show about massive rampant voter fraud, about stealing the elections, giving sanction to that big lie, even though there proof, evidence after evidence after evidence that this did not happen. There wasn't massive rampant voter fraud. Trump lost because he is a horrible president. He was never president of the people. He was president of his base. He made that clear coming out the box during the transition when he held his rallies and his rallies were for his base. He made that clear during the pandemic when Jared Kushner is saying, ah, it's going, uh, you know, this COVID-19 is just running rampant in those blue states. Ah, let them suffer. Never the president of the people. And the people knew that organized, mobilized, and voted in the midst of a pandemic. They couldn't believe with all that they had done, like trying to kneecap the post office to get rid of absentee ballots, the efficiency of using absentee ballots in a pandemic. They could not believe that Black people, Latinos, Indigenous people, poor people, came out and voted in mass. In Georgia, we had a massive turnout of Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders as well, came out in mass against this horrific regime after all that they have done with voter suppression techniques. So yes, they lost. They tried to steal the election and they lost. And that was just jarring for them because how did we lose to them? That was, that, that's really what that means. And so you get with white rage, this, this, this cover of legitimate power sources stoking an illegitimate lie 
in order to undermine and undercut. So when you hear, you know, we would have won except for the votes in Philadelphia. If you don't count the votes in Philadelphia and you don't count the votes in Atlanta and in Detroit and Milwaukee, we would have won. Well, eh. <laughs> that that really is 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 that's white rage. That's mm-hmm. what sent those folks up into the Capitol. That's what sent the folks up with a noose. They built a gallow with the noose. Um, that's what has them yelling, "Hang Mike Pence!" Um, and where's Nancy? So white rage is the policy like voter suppression. And then we see it being sanctioned by the, the, that violence being sanctioned by the, the folks in power. Hmm. Now, you brought up Georgia and you saw the Capitol riot just the day after Georgia sent a Jewish man with descendants, uh, uh, immigrants, and a black man, uh, descendants of sharecroppers, John Ossoff and the Reverend Raphael Warnick, they sent them to the United States Senate to tilt the balance of the chamber away from the Republicans. So is there a connection? <laughs> I think so. I, you know, so one, we have to know that that, 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 that that assault on the Capitol was planned before the, the vote tallies came in. So we've got to get the, the sequence right. But part of what that sequence is, is to understand it was this massive turnout in the November election that put Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the executive branch as the leaders of the executive branch, president and vice president. And that stoked the fire because it was, it was unimaginable to them. And then, and so you heard it with with Trump's phone call to Brad Raffensperger, who's the Secretary of State, where he's like, "Ah, Stacey Abrams, she's kicking your butt. You're afraid of her, right? And so, you know, providing the image of the scary Black woman um, who is brilliant and an incredible organizer and leader who mobilized this state. You know, there were all of these organizations working. They were working together and brought out all of the various constituencies that flipped Georgia blue. And they could tell that something was going on because the polls were really close when it comes to these incumbents too close in Georgia, Georgia that just had flipped blue. This was part of the anger. This was part of the the riling up. So I think that the sequence is November, the the efforts to overturn, seeing how close the polls were. And let's be really clear, what Kelly Leffler and David Perdue were offering, they could not talk about their policies. What they were offering was fear. Fear fear and more fear that your white supremacist lifestyle will be under assault if Ossoff gets in and if Warnock gets in. And remember that Purdue drew drew on uh, the ad for Ossoff a larger nose to emphasize, you know, he's Jewish 
And Kelly Leffler in her ad for Warnock darkened his face the same way, I believe it was time darkened OJ's yeah. face. OJ. Yeah. Yeah, the other, right? the other. The other, right? And so you you get this othering happening in this 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 Senate runoff race of fear. This is what is stoking it. Well, in your book, One Person, No Vote, you explain how the systemic and effective tools of voter suppression that are race-based without explicitly being race-based, uh, and uh, which we see probably they'll try to use these issues of non-existent voter fraud to implement more of them. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, Absolutely. It, it, it's a takeoff of the Mississippi plan of 1890, which was the, in the rise of Jim Crow, where Mississippi was trying to figure out how do we get rid of all these black voters? But the 15th amendment that says the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So you can't write a law saying we don't want black people to vote. So what they did was to come up with these synonyms so they used, for instance, literacy, knowing how they had systematically denied education to Black people. So they used literacy as a gateway to the ballot box. And they used poverty as a block to the ballot box with the poll tax. It worked. It worked fabulously. The rest of the Southern states picked those policies up. And by 1940, only 3% of black voters in the South were registered to vote. So what we see here in the modern day is to do the same thing, to take these kinds of synonyms. So we hear about uh, voter ID and on the surface, it sounds race neutral, except when you see how they crafted the laws, how they got data the state legislatures got data on who had what types of IDs by race and then privileged the types of IDs that whites held and ignored and invalidated the types of IDs that African-Americans had. You see it with poll closures, again, under the guise of being fiscally responsible. And these polling stations often aren't on public transportation Mm -hmm. routes. If you don't have a car and there's not public transportation, how do you get to the polling place? And so this is what we're seeing right now here in Georgia, where the Georgia Republicans are are debating getting rid of no excuse absentee ballots. Now, we have had no excuse absentee ballots here in Georgia for 15 years, and there hasn't been a discussion about getting rid of them, except after 2020 when African-Americans used absentee ballots in large measure because of the pandemic. And that that use of those absentee ballots now become a a kind of, how do we stop this? Black people are using this method to Mm -hmm. vote. And so it's it's not the, um, so it's not that it's the absentee ballot itself, it is the fact that Black people use that method to vote. 
No, I thought that when the Kansas Senator Marshall, I believe, said the Kansans feel like they were disenfranchised, I was like, no, they just were outvoted. (laughs) They weren't disenfranchised. Uh, Now, we've seen the reaction to the growing diversity that uh, this divide where some refuse to accept the validity of elections that they lose because of who votes for the opponents. Um, As a historian uh, who's seen the progress and the pushback, and my son's a historian as well, where do we go from here? Will there be more? scenes uh, as they're planning to keep our country safe, more scenes like January 6th, and what needs to be done to prevent this? So what we need to have is accountability. That the folks who did this mess, who spurred on this mess, who built the lies, who kept repeating the lies, who who antagonized the, the mob, who spurred them on, they need to be held accountable. When we don't have accountability in a system, it, it fosters the continued destabilization of that system. Accountability is, is key. I think another piece that is key is a real history, real education about who we are and how we got here and who did what. Um, when you have that knowledge, you move in this space very differently. Um, the kind of swag that you have about, you know, we built this, the greatest nation on earth, da 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 da, um, without understanding who the we really are. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you don't have a full definition of the we, it means that you create really exclusive policies about who you think is worthy and unworthy. So we need to have a real history that is full and vibrant, evidence-based, not mythology-based, evidence-based. And we need to have media. Definitely. Um, Now, one other thing we've seen, we saw last week, we've seen a lot, is a disparity between police treatment of those protesting for racial justice and white rioters who were breaching the Capitol in order to attack lawmakers and the Democratic process itself, and the fact that many of these people who were talking about Blue Lives Matter were attacking, injuring, and killing police. Um, Were you surprised about, talk a little bit about that. You know, I wasn't surprised. Um, And one, again, when I talk about false equivalents, you hear Black Lives Matter did it. No, they didn't. You cannot point to Black Lives Matter burning up stuff. You can't point to them killing anybody. When there were these, the the burnings that were happening and the shootings that were happening in Minneapolis, it turned out that those were actual white supremacists who were trying to, to create the aura of violence. And so just getting that that violence was emanating out of a Black Lives Matter protest. So getting the facts right is important. White supremacy will kill. White supremacy will kill whites. White supremacy has always killed whites. Whites who have gotten in the way of of propping up a white supremacist regime. And so when you had, you know, the uh, officer Sicknick, um, who who was beaten to death, and he was you know, as they say, a Trump supporter. 
But that wasn't enough because he was standing in the way of overturning that election, of, of getting to the lawmakers to not certify the election. We in this nation have, must understand how lethal white supremacy is. Um, it, it is the way that we romanticize the Civil War. I mean, where you can get these Confederate statues all over the place without saying these are the folks who attacked and tried to dismember the United States of America so that they could own human beings. These are traitors. Why would we honor traitors? You've talked so much about and written about voting. One bill that has been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk is the John Lewis, the name for another Georgian uh, that we lost, uh, Voting Act, and to restore some of those provisions that were gutted by the Supreme Court in the Voting Rights Act. Now they have a, a slim Senate majority with the Kamala Harris's tie vote. Um, should that be a priority? Oh, it has to be a high priority because what we're seeing is after uh, the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County Beholder decision in 2013, these states came out in mass, in full, implementing all of these voter suppression laws, such as the voter ID laws, uh, such as the massive voter roll purges that we're seeing, um, where what the Brennan Center noted from 2014 to 2016, 17 million people had been removed from the voting rolls. When these states have to be responsive to another power that is overseeing what they're doing to make sure that it is not racially discriminatory, to make sure that their voting laws do not block American citizens from American elections. Oh, that has to be um, one of the top priorities, particularly because of the ways that the Trump regime has mobilized the lie of voter fraud. One question I always ask my guests, because I always have smart folks, and I know there's a question I have not asked you <laughs> that you wish I had, because you really have something to say on the issue. So what is it you really want to say? What's your message? My message is, is that democracy is not a spectator sport. It is not a game. It requires all of us to be held accountable for upholding it, for strengthening it, and to hold those who are trying to destroy it fully accountable. And I, I also want to ask you, Professor Anderson, Carol, if I may say, I am a professional and do what I do, but I'm an African-American woman in the United States of America. And some scenes, some of the highs and the lows, the things that have going, sometimes it, you, I have to say, I, it breaks you. I feel that way. And how mm -hmm. are you? How are you feeling? What keeps you up at night? Just, I just want to check in and how are you? Thank you. Exhausted. Um, frustrated. 
and um, determined. It's, it's, as you said, been talking about this, warning about this for years and feeling like Cassandra in the Oristian trilogy um, where she's warning Agamemnon, don't go in that house. She's going to kill you. And me too. Don't go in. And Agamemnon's like, ah, what do you know? <laughs> and he sashays right up in there and his wife kills him. That's what this feels like. Black women have been hollering about white supremacy and Trump and the dangers of this regime for years. And so when you have folks going, who can believe? I can't believe that. And it's like, it's tiring. Hmm. It's tiring. The, 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 the articles and the research, they're there. They have been made very accessible. So who can believe means you chose not to look and you got to look. And so it's tiring. It's tiring. And, and, you know, and I think about what my parents and my grandparents went through and my great grandparents, you know, living in a nation that refuses to acknowledge your humanity, that refuses to acknowledge your citizenship and where your life is always precariously perched because of the virulent white supremacy that has been allowed to run unchecked in this nation. As a historian who's looked at this, all of these issues and throughout history in the United States, what's next uh, in the coming week? And in the future, what's next for America? Thank you for that question. Um, What's next is part of where we are right now is actually in the midst of white rage. The white rage that I detailed in the book, where for every advance, significant advance for African-Americans for their citizenship rights, there is a policy backlash to undermine those rights. and. One of the key moments that I looked at was the election of Barack Obama. And the election of Barack Obama is, Trump is the white rage response to that. And so when you begin to think about what just happened in this election with Kamala Harris um, being elected vice president of the United States, with Reverend Raphael Warnock being elected a senator, we can expect more white rage. We can expect those in power to to manipulate laws, to figure out how do we stop this? How do we maintain white supremacy in the United States? We are in for a battle for democracy's life. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. And we have to be clear-eyed about what's at stake. Thank you, Professor Anderson, for joining me and our listeners on Equal Time. So, what's keeping me up at night? Do you have to ask? 
the scenes of Confederate flags being marched through the U.S. Capitol, something that never happened even during the Civil War, a noose, law enforcement being pummeled with an American flag while the crowd chants USA, fears that this is only the beginning? I wrote in my most recent CQ Roll Call column that when black churches were attacked and vandalized by Proud Boys and their ilk in December, it was a signal that nothing would be sacred, and nothing was. But the day before January 6th, the country will never forget, the former Confederate state of Georgia sent the son of a sharecropper to the United States Senate, a reverend who leads the historic church where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a gospel of justice. In January, we celebrate King's life and work while trying not to forget his and the country's struggle. And perhaps, amid the nightmares, we can dream his dream. So, what's keeping you up at night? Tweet me, at mcurtisnc3, and I'll share it with our listeners. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.